Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is by Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of the React Podcast is brought to you by ReactTraining.com. In-person, hands-on training for development teams from React community leaders and experts. Visit reacttraining.com to learn more about our upcoming workshops. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the React Podcast. I am your host, Michael Jackson, and I have a very special guest with me today, David K. Piano. Hey, glad to be here. And, uh, you know, I... I uh, I actually forgot to ask you before we started. How do you, how exactly do you pronounce your last name, David? So my last name is pronounced Korshid, or at least Korshid. I think it is. Yeah, <laughs> got it. And I take it you're a piano player as well. I do. Yeah, I do play piano. Nice. Uh, yeah, I mean you would have to. I mean, if to put it in your in your screen name, right? Have you been playing for a while? Uh, yeah, I've been playing for over 20 years. You'd be surprised how many people think that piano is my last name just because it's on my phone. <laughs> yeah, it's so you're probably pretty good at it. Was that like was that like did you study it in school or anything? Uh, yeah, it was actually my uh, my major in college. And then only only at the very last year did I decide that I would rather do web development as a career than be a musician because, I mean, they make a little bit more money, so. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, unless you're like, you know, Elton John, you could have, you could have, you could have been Elton John. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that's awesome. I, it, you know, it's funny how many uh, musicians I meet uh, in in programming and in development in general. I'm a, I'm actually a musician. I sing and I play the guitar and I like played with a band and stuff in high school and stuff. But when anyway, um, well, that's cool, man. That's 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 really cool. Um, so, uh, so David is the, um, so I first met David, I should probably tell people I first met David last year at the react rally conference in Salt Lake city, Utah. And I met him in the, uh, I guess you could say kind of backstage, although it was more like just a room off to the side of the stage. Um, and, uh, it, David was also giving a talk that year, uh, about uh, finite state machines in React. And it was a topic that for me was super interesting because I've done some work with uh, state machines in the past. You've probably uh, done some work with state machines if you uh, if you have any kind of, uh, you know, formal uh, training in programming. If not, uh, hopefully today we'll, we'll be able to talk about a little bit of that too and, and kind of help you understand what they are and what they're useful for. Um, but first of all, I just wanted to ask David if he could tell us a little bit um, about himself and, and maybe David, you could tell us a little bit about too, like what you do, um, day to day at Microsoft. Sure. So like you said, I work at Microsoft. I'm a software developer, about six years of experience. I feel like I'm in a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> Can you solve this, uh, hard logic puzzle for me? No, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, right now I'm working on the VS live share team, which is a way of real time collaboration with developers, whether you're using Visual Studio or VS Code, you could pretty much code from the comforts of your own editor from anywhere in the world and even do things like sharing debug sessions and shared live servers and all of that. 
Oh, nice. So, so you're working, so VS Code is, uh, it's, I, I didn't realize, is VS Code online? Like, is it, like, does it run in a browser? I mean, I know it runs on Electron, but. So, no, and. I probably misinterpreted what you just said. <laughs> it's, it's, it, you're, you're working on like this live mode for VS Code, right? That allows you to share, but it's not in a browser. It's just maybe right there in the actual VS Code editor, right? Right, exactly. So I, l- let's say I have a problem on a project. I would start a share session with you and I would send you a uh, a share session link and you would click that. And if we both have, you know, the, the live share extension installed, you could see my project from your own editor. You could edit files, rename files, um, start nice. a debug session, all of that. Nice, nice. So you send me a link and then it opens in my editor. Exactly. Sweet. Sweet. Um, and so, so VS code is, uh, is actually built, uh, as far as I understand, it's an electron app, right? And so it's built using a lot of web technologies. Um, so how long have you been, uh, working with the, the VS code team? So we don't work directly with the VS code team. Uh, we work oh, okay. alongside them. Uh, okay. the, the live share team is really its own team and actually, got it. I've only started working with this team uh, since the last time we talked, so about six months. Okay, cool, cool. Well, that sounds like a that sounds like a pretty awesome uh, gig. Also, what you just described sounds incredibly difficult. It's one thing to, for me to just pop open my editor and start typing. Uh, it's another thing entirely once you know we're trying to synchronize changes or or share some kind of. Uh, you know, some kind of a, like you were talking about a debugging session. I mean, um, I, I, I remember writing, reading a, a white paper once from Google about, um, Google wave. Do you remember Google wave? That was like kind of that thing where they, they had like shared document editing in Google wave. And it, but anyway, they, they described this like operational transform over the document, right? So if one person is typing some characters and then you start to like delete those same characters? Like how would you resolve these, those kinds of conflicts? Are these the kinds of problems that you're, that you're kind of grappling with when you're working on LiveShare? Right. So in LiveShare, we do use the operational transform algorithm. Thankfully, all that legwork was already pretty much established and done by the time that I got there. However, with that said, there's still a lot of moving parts in uh, VS Code and Visual Studio for LiveShare because it's not just syncing uh, collaborative edits. It's also syncing IntelliSense, like if you're using C-sharp or TypeScript. And we plan on supporting more languages in the future. And also, as you said, debug sessions, local servers, things like that. Got it. Got it. And so you got up last year at React Rally and you gave a talk about, uh, let's see, it was entitled uh, Deterministic Finite automata in, uh, in, in, and you, and you talked about how to apply this specifically to react. I imagine that, um, maybe some of that work is, uh, is useful in the, in the work that you're doing today, right? Uh, you know, when, when there's lots of sort of, you know, uh, actions and things coming in, things happening concurrently, lots of moving pieces. It probably uh, helps a lot to have a machine where you can, you know, reliably predict, you know, given the state that we're in, there's some new input. Uh, where are we going from here? Is that, does it, does it relate to kind of the, the work that you do day to day? Oh yeah, absolutely. So 
since I started the uh, started joining the team right after React's rally, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, when I started working on the project, I noticed that there were a lot of issues based around states where let's say that, you know, you were trying to log in and then you were trying to share a session. And at the same time, you're like, actually, I want to log out. And then you, you get this sort of weird state where eventually the session will be shared, but you're not logged in anymore. So, you know, how do you resolve that? And there were a whole bunch of both UI and, you know, just internal business logic issues around that. And so I took a step back and I, I, um, I drew out a state machine just to model all of the complex like sign in, login, sharing, joining, debugging behavior. And I, I decided to apply what I practiced, basically dog fooding, and make it an explicit state machine. And we saw an entire class of UI problems just disappear because we mm-hmm. explicitly modeled the same machine and we knew that there were certain impossible states that we could never reach. And previously, those impossible states were bugs. And on top of that, uh, I was able to add you know, two lines of code to add telemetry for those transitions from state to state. And we we got some pretty nice looking graphs on just um, like what paths are most commonly took with users using the actual app. And so from there, we get really valuable insights such as, oh, a lot of users are seeming to hit this error and they're hitting this error when they travel this path, like when they log in externally and they do this and they do that. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I talked about this at uh, JSConf a couple weeks ago, too. Uh, was that the one in, um, sorry, in Australia? Iceland, actually. Oh, oh, Iceland. That's of course. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. I forgot. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Um, how could I forget? My, one of my, the, actually, one of the most recent guests that I interviewed was uh, Dan, uh, just that week that he was actually going to Iceland. Awesome. So, um so let's, let's, I wanted to back up just, just a little bit for the sake of maybe some of the listeners who haven't ever actually worked with, um, state machines before, maybe, you know, in a, in a kind of like a very sort of succinct way, could you sort of sum up what, what you mean when you're talking about, you know, a state machine? Sure. So the first thing to realize is that you are already writing state machines. Every single developer listening to this podcast, every single developer doing any sort of development, they're already creating state machines. It's just mm-hmm. not very well defined. So uh, the I guess the, the hello world example of a state machine is a stoplight, but I want to give that example. It's a little bit too contrived. So instead, uh, let's talk about a promise when you make a promise. At first... No promises made. So, you know, you're just idle. You're waiting for a promise to be made. And then when you make that promise, like let's say you're fetching something from an API, uh, you go into this pending state. You're waiting for the promise to resolve or reject. So you did an action, which is starting that promise, and now you're pending. And now you could either have it resolve or reject. And if it resolves, you get into this fulfilled state. Mm-hmm. If it rejects, you get into this uh, failure state or error state. 
Uh, I forget which one it is. So basically what I described was a series of states, which is a finite number of states, which is you're either idle, pending, fulfilled, or rejected, and a series of actions, which is executing the promise, having the promise succeed, or having the promise fail. Mm-hmm. I, I like what you had to say about, uh, you know, people are already doing this, right? I mean, if you think about it, you know, in your uh, in your Node.js callback, when you say, if there was an error, uh, you know, take one branch, you know, maybe log it or throw it or do whatever you want, call the callback with the error. Otherwise, do something else, right? So we are you know, we are embedding these, these state machines or these pieces of, uh, these pieces of logic, these decisions basically on how we go from one state to the next, um, all over the place, right? It's all over the place in our code. Uh, and we're deciding, okay, if, you know, like you say, if there was a, if, you know, if there was a failure, we are now going to run some sort of failure or error handling code. Otherwise, if there was success, um, you know, we're going to handle the success case. It, it kind of reminds me as well of, um, you know, you use the example of a, of a promise um, in in uh, the flux pattern. For those people who might be uh, familiar with flux, it was kind of a thing <laughs> for a while in in the React uh, ecosystem. But you know, if you if you had some sort of asynchronous behavior in in flux, whether it was modeled with a, a promise or a callback, you know, some you're making like some network request or whatever. Um, you would usually have, you know, one action that's like, okay, here's, now we're getting started with this. We're going to fetch some data. Um, and then at least two actions to represent, uh, what happens when you get back. So either here's the data and we succeeded in the request or the request failed and, and we didn't succeed and here's the error, you know? And so we're, you know, we have, this is very, very common. This is a very, very common thing that we've got already, uh, scattered all throughout our code. And yet most of the time it's not sort of written out and very sort of structured, right? It's just sort of hidden and tucked away in these, you know, like I said, in these if statements or, or maybe, you know, switches or something. It's, but it's stuff that we're doing all the time already, right? Right. Exactly. The, the way I like to think about it is that all of the business logic exists in the developer's head. And the problem with that especially now that I'm working on collaborative software, is when you're working with another developer, they might not know exactly what's in your head. They can't read your mind. And just reading the code, they're trying to decipher what your intentions are, what the intended business logic is. Mm. And that's less than ideal. However, that's the way that many, many developers, the majority of developers are developing nowadays. Why? Because it's easy. It's the most straightforward path. And as soon as you talk to a developer about how about taking a little bit more uh, legwork to actually model this properly, they say, why? It's easier to just use an if statement or a switch statement. And so that's when I say, here, let's visualize your app. Try doing that with the code that you wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's. I, I want to talk about that that visualization next. Um, I just wanted to say r- real quickly is that um, this actually feels a lot like what React itself does for me and for my apps um, as far as state goes, right? Because um, before I started using React, you know, maybe I was building an app with 
you know, jQuery or whatever I was using before, I would have little bits of state in my app, but they were just variables, right? And, but if I ever asked myself like, okay, what is all of the state in the app? Uh, it wasn't ever, you know, very obvious to me until I collected them all into these objects where I said, okay, this is the state. This is the state of this component right now, right? And and these set state calls uh, model, you know, changes to those states. So in, in, in some ways, uh, what you're describing to me is like the logical next step. You know, now that we know sort of what our state is, um, and, and again, talking specifically about React, I think it makes sense to, you know, uh, have a have a structured way to say, okay, what is the business logic that dictates changes to that state? You know, let's get it out of your head just so that it doesn't, it, you're not the only person that knows about this and, and let's write it down so that, uh, so that we can all discuss it and so we can all see it and we can, and as you were, as you were saying, you know, we can, we can actually visualize it. Now you've actually built a, a visualization tool, uh, for, for, uh, for state machines. Yeah, I did. And I'm actually coming out with a new version soon. Um, and, and the way it works is that we have a declarative representation of the state machine. So I'm just using a JSON object. Um, and so this is my project X dates. That's what's, uh, that, that's, what's being used to model this. And, uh, funny enough, there's a specification called SCXML, uh, which is of course, extremely declarative because it's XML, <laughs> which describes these uh, state machines and state charts. And this is a very old specification. I think it's more than 10 years old. However, it's it's essentially done and it's being used in other fields of technology. Interesting. So SC, I assume, stands for state charts. So, uh, so SCXML would be a way to describe uh, a state chart or, or a state machine in uh, in XML, I, I, you know, I bet we could just build a parser for that, uh, and boil it down to, uh, an, uh, an X state JSON object. Yeah, that's actually, I'm working on that right now. And so that's <laughs> going to be coming out soon. Nice. Nice. I look forward to seeing that. Um, and so right now, how do you, right now, how do you do it? If you want to get started with, uh, with kind of, uh, you know, with X state or with, with these visualizations, um, I, uh, by the way, I have to say, uh, I was a huge fan of the approach where you're just like, this is just, uh, this is just a JSON object, you know? And, uh, and, and I, I thought it was hilarious actually when you, when you said in your react rally talk, you're like, Hey, you know, if you want a magical finite state machine library thing, take this function right here. And it was, uh, it was literally just, uh, you know, a function that selects, um, based on the, there were, let's see, there was nested two levels deep, your object, right? The top level is, uh, something about like the current state. And then the next level is all of the actions, the possible actions in that current state. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's just a sort of a dictionary, a mapping between, um, a state an action and the next state based on, you know, the current state and the action. Nice. And, and then you, you had this function and you said, look, here's this function. If I minify it, it's uh, super small. Don't, you know, I think it was like 22 bytes or something. And you said, don't gzip it or else it'll be 44 bytes. It'll just be bigger. <laughs> I, I love that. X state's considerably bigger than that, of course. And that's because it's dealing with state charts where there's a 
there it, it's nested state machine so there's a little bit more to the algorithm um but uh, that's sort of besides the point uh, as far as getting started with x state and state machines in general um i always tell people that you know don't, don't worry about like researching about state machines like just take baby steps and i, I posted some of these on twitter one of them is for example, using enum statements in, or enum expressions instead of having something like is loaded equals false, is error equals false, mm-hmm. is, you know, those Boolean flags. Because uh, those Boolean flags um, are really not representative of my app could only be in one of these states at any given what time. If, what if two of them are true? Now, which state are you exactly. in, right? Like, it's not entirely clear. What depends on which if statement comes first. Exactly. And, and the thing is that developers who love using if statements will tell me, oh, I, I'm going to keep using Boolean flags because if I have is loading true and then I have is success true, I could just make sure that is loading is set to false. And I tell them that that's a perfect example of having all of the business logic inside your head. The if statements doesn't directly tell me that it could only be in is loading or is success. Uh, so you have to do it manually. Now, in your talk, you you talked about two different kinds of states. Um, and I believe you were talking about X state when you said this. You said there are hierarchical states and concurrent states. Um, could you maybe describe a little bit more what you meant by those by or by that distinction? Sure. So... Actually, let's use routing as an example. I know you worked on React Router. Yeah, for sure. And routing is also a great way to think about state machines because the way you configure your app, you could only be in one route at a time. But, of course, with React Router, you could have nested routes. So let's say you're on the user's page, but you're going to a specific user, like users slash Michael. Then... You're both in the user's state, which is the parent state, but you're also in the Michael state, which is the child state. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the idea behind uh, behind hierarchical finite state machines or state charts. Now, um, l- let's say you have two panels. Let's say you have a user's panel and on the right side you have a, uh, I don't know, a, a workshops panel, you know, where you're managing all of the workshops then you're in both of those states at the same time. You're in both the user state and the workshop state. And so that's what's meant by parallel states. Got it. So that, that's just another that's just another state machine over there, right? That's just two state machines running on the same page, right? Right, exactly. An- another example is, let's say you have a little toolbar where you could make something bold or italic or underline or maybe a combination of those. And trying to model that as a state machine of course you could do, but you're going to have arrows going all over the place in an explosion of different transitions. And so that's what state charts try to solve. Mm, got it. Just modeling that so that you could have all of those at the same time. Got it. Got it. Um, so is so. let's talk a little bit about kind of some of the benefits uh, as you've seen them that kind of um, I mean, I, I suppose we've touched on, on them already, but maybe some of some more of the kind of, um, you know, concrete benefits when it comes to like, you know, testing your apps and and being able to like 
sleep easy at night because you're, because you know that, you know, you've modeled everything, uh, with the state machine. Is it possible, for example, to, uh, to build, you know, a, a function where you could essentially prove your app? It seems like it, it seems like it should be right. I, I mean, uh, people who have, I, I've never actually done any, any, um, Haskell, but I know that uh, for people who have, that's kind of one of the things that they really get excited about is like, Hey, look, I can prove my Haskell code. You know, this is, this is mathematically sound code. And it seems like we could kind of get there if we had a, a state machine where we could sort of map out all the states. Like we could write a pretty good test suite and say, look, if these are all the states, and these are all the actions for all the different states. Uh, we could kind of, kind of automate some of that, right? Couldn't we uh, uh, automate, uh, you know, transitions between states and ensure that we actually do end up in the states that we that we think we should be going to when we get these certain inputs? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what you were talking about at first gets more into the area of formal methods and formal verification, which is something that number one has existed for decades. And number two, I really hope one day finds its way into um, the front end JavaScript community, just because it's an amazingly powerful thing. And it's the next step after all of our quote unquote testing innovations like snapshot testing and to end testing, all of that stuff is going beyond, oh, hey, I wrote a thousand tests and saying like, here is a model of my app and I could 100% prove to you that it has no bugs, which is pretty awesome. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if I, uh, I, 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 I'm not a sort of classically formally trained developer myself. I just kind of, I'm, I'm kind of a self-taught programmer, but it, uh, Neither yeah, it I. sounds, <laughs> it sounds pretty awesome. Have you, have you done any sort of, uh, have you done any of that kind of thing before, that kind of um, uh, ver formal verification? Not yet, but it's something that I've definitely wanted to play with. I've been looking at uh, something called TLA+, which is one of the more popular uh, methods of formal verification. And of course, there's numerous others. Um, and in fact, um, people have written research papers on using these state charts as models for formal verification. Got it. Got it. But what, what I have been doing is... Um, if I have an app modeled as a uh, state chart, and I, I've actually been doing this in LiveShare and a couple of other projects, uh, I I would use that exact same state chart that I used to code uh, some part of my app, and I would use that to generate all of the possible states and transitions uh, that could be taken for uh, that app. Okay. And so... Yeah, so so I add a few heuristics onto that. Like, for example, if I'm in the home states, then the title says home. Just really simple tests like that. And based on that, I could automate the generation of integration tests, you know, where you're testing from, uh, from starting the app to some end state. And um, I, I found that it, it works really well. And so my heuristics are my assumptions of like how the app uh, should look at any given state and um, you know, all the actions I mm -hmm. take. And um, I, I, I would generate like 60 or 70 tests, like for some, you know, sizable state chart. And I would just 
ask myself, like, do I really want to be hand coding? All no, of these no, no. Tests? I mean, it's, it, it seems like a logical next step, right? I mean, now that we've, now that we've sort of gotten the business logic out of the developer's head and into a, into a JSON object that where he's, where, you know, declaring it essentially right there in the code seems like a logical next step where we could, you know, iterate over that object. And, and yeah, as you said, generate generate tests for all the different inputs. It's fascinating. Yeah. And there's actually a project not even written by me, but by uh, uh, Michael Bertoli. Uh, he, he works on um, React at Facebook in London. Oh, I yeah, believe, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so he, he wrote this uh, library called React Automata, where you take um, you take state charts, which are written using um, my library XState. And you apply them to a component. So these are just normal components. They could be whatever you want them to be. And then um, you could just iterate through all the states just by that. There's this one method called test state chart. And you pass in the state chart and your components, and it just writes all the tests for you. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. For every given state. It, it, it's not doing like full testing quite yet. Um, like, you know, of executing every single possible action and all of that. But it's generating just a ton of snapshot tests where you don't have to manually generate them. And so it's a really cool project and I encourage everyone nice. to check so it out. You said React Automata. Cool. Yes. So, um, uh, yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask you about that next, about, you know, it, this sounds really, really cool, right? X-State sounds really cool. Is there like a... React X state sort of library, or is that it? Is or is that is is React Automata just for testing, or is it actually for some you know something that I can use to say, okay, here's my here's my X state JSON object. Um, here are the components that I want to render in the different states. Um, build my app. For, you know, is, is that, does that something that, that exists or is that something that, that you're interested in? Or is there some sort of reason why that's not a great idea? So, uh, React Automata lets you build these components using these state charts, uh, as far as like a React specific X state. Um, I, I, I like to think of using X state as sort of a framework listing. It doesn't matter if you're using Angular, Vue, React, whatever it's, it's similar to RxJS. I love using RxJX and React, and I, I don't really like just pulling libraries that automatically do certain bindings just because I like to think of RxJS as its own thing that supplements React and lets me use it a lot better. Uh, with that said, I definitely want to be working with Michael on React Automata and seeing how we could integrate XState and uh, make it, you know, do more robust testing and even automatic visualizations. There was someone who actually did a, uh, or started a project where they integrated XState with Storybook. And that way you could take your React components, give it a state chart and have it automatically render the components in every single possible state, which I'm sure developers who use Storybook who are maybe listening right now, they know that they have to do every single one of those manually right now which sucks. <laughs> you know, we, we've talked a lot about state. We've talked a lot about transitioning between states. I know that some people listening are probably going to think, oh, um, maybe, maybe this is like the new Redux or the new MobX or something like that. 
Um, could you talk maybe a little bit about, so if I, if I have an app that I've built with, you know, Redux already, um, doesn't mean I can't throw a couple of, couple of state machines in there and kind of firm up, uh, you know, some of the flows in the app, right? We can use both of these things together, right? Right, right. And actually I, I encourage it. XState is not really a replacement for Redux or MobX since it doesn't try to manage your entire state. It, it's just a pure function that you say, here's my current state and here's the action that just happened. What's the next state? That's the only thing it answers. And uh, so I actually really appreciate you know, what Redux has done for the JavaScript community because Redux, you know, what, whether people realize it or not, is sort of a just a grand intro to state machines because it essentially is a state machine. It's sort of an infinite state machine where you don't know what state might come out, but you know it's at least going to be deterministic. Um, but all of those switch statements that you make in your Redux reducers, or you know, maybe you're doing that in MobX state tree, um, all of those switch statements could be modeled as finite yeah. state machines because obviously with a switch statement, there's only a finite number of states and you're responding to a finite number of actions. And so that's exactly what a state machine is. The problem is you can't take, you, you can't take a switch statement and extract all of those case conditions and have it output into a nice JSON object. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you could just have a, you could have a reducer that uh, that just looks at those actions and determines what the next, I mean, this sounds silly to say this because all reducers do this, but it, it determines what the next state of the app is. And I'm not talking about, you know, your Redux state, like a counter or something. I'm talking about like, you know, the, the, the X state state, right? The name of the next sort of high level state that this app is in, right? Um, and you could drive some other things based on that. Um, so yeah, it seems like, seems like the two would actually integrate really, really well. Well, cool. Um, right on. So David, uh, we have been going now for just over half an hour. Um, usually I kind of wrap things up around now. Is there anything else that you'd like to kind of tell people before we wrap things up? Uh, sure. So, um, just real quick, you were mentioning how like react it sort of like changes the way that you think about apps and it sort of moves you towards the state machine model, which is why I love React so much. And what's interesting is, and I actually talked to Dan about this at JSConf Iceland, uh, with the new suspense and the async rendering stuff, um, it's moving even closer to the state machine and state chart model. And it's because uh, with a state machine and state chart, obviously it will tell you the next dates, but you also might have things done uh, with those states. For example, if you're going from idle to loading something, you're going to need to fetch the search results, right? And so uh, with React, their model is throwing a promise, which might seem crazy, but it's actually what's done in, like in a conceptual way in many uh, functional languages as well. And so that models what state charts do too, where you would give it a current state, give it an action, or sorry, an event, and you would get the next, well, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. the event okay, is whatever it, the user it. does. Yeah, so given the current state and the event, you would get not just the next date, but you would get the next date and the actions to be performed. And so in React, that's modeled uh, as okay, got it. thrown yeah, promises. So the next state is we throw the promise, which is now that we're in this pending state, basically. Um, and then the 
I guess the action to be performed in that case would be resolve the promise, right? Uh, right, exactly. And so that, that's why I encourage everyone, like as this async rendering and uh, suspense and time slicing stuff comes out more and more this year, as will be announced by the React team, look at the similarities between that and state machines and see how it could help you model your app nice. as a state yeah, machine. Yeah, I think, I think there are just, uh, there are a lot, a lot of, of avenues, I think, to explore with this. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, David Korshid, again. Um, where can people find you and follow you? You're, you're David K. Piano pretty much everywhere, right? Uh, yeah, so David K. Piano on Twitter, on, on GitHub. Um, again, the author of X State and has done a ton of work with State Machine. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And uh, hopefully it won't be too long before uh, we get to catch up in person. Thanks, David. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the React Podcast hosted by Michael Jackson. Michael runs the ever awesome React Training. Check that out at reacttraining.com. And of course, bandwidth for changelaw.com is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. Air monitoring is provided by Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week.